0: <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. Some... That what that essentially means is discoveries, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, <laughs> this is the Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist, the programme that brings you the latest in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith, and in the show this week, your questions are going under our microscope, including why the Neanderthal in us may alter our susceptibility to COVID-19, how black holes work, and why do we run temperatures... When we get ill. Plus, there's going to be our customary quiz at halftime when we'll test the metal of our team. With me are an astronomer, an archaeologist, a global health specialist, and a physicist. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. And on this World Cup kicking off week, we will kick off with a look at our lineup. Emma Pomeroy is an archaeologist at the University of Cambridge. She has worked on our close relatives, those are the Neanderthals, and she's also interested in how susceptibilities to different diseases that we see today evolved in the past. Hello, Emma. Welcome to the programme. It's been a huge Year, I want to say for for people interested in Neanderthals, hasn't it, especially in the last few months, because we've seen a Nobel Prize for the sequencing of the Neanderthal genome. We also saw that amazing paper where, again, genomics had been brought to bear against people living in caves, two adjacent caves in Russia, those Neanderthal communities where they showed there was society there. Also, we've seen, not Neanderthals, but the first amputation of a person from about 30,000 yes. years ago who survived. So it's been sort of a big year for your field.
1: Absolutely. And I think it always is. Um... There are so many discoveries and, and new techniques, you know, you you might think of Neanderthals and fossils and, you know, there's not much happening in that field. But actually we're discovering new species, new things that we could never have imagined studying. Like you said, the the relationships between individuals found in particular caves. So it's really exciting stuff.
0: Um, and And this question about our susceptibility to modern diseases that being rooted in our evolutionary past. I know we're going to talk about that a bit more in the programme. So anyway, good to have you back with us, with us yeah, Emma Pomeroy. Good Pomerang. to be back. thank you. Jonathan Kennedy's also here. Jonathan actually works for the Global Health Team at Queen Mary University of London. He's got a book coming out next year. It's going to be called Pathogenesis. It's absolutely brilliant, actually, Jonathan. I've really enjoyed reading this book. It's a beautiful exploration of, again, some of what Emma's saying about our evolutionary origins and how diseases play out in the past and really take shape in the modern era as well. In your book, do you actually see how our past leads us to really the, the the risk of diseases and the way that they manifest in the modern era?
2: Well, I think the whole whole kind of narrative of the book is arguing that viruses, bacteria and other pathogens have just had a, a fundamental role in not just the evolution of complex life and, and humans, but social, political, and also economic life. So the meta argument, I suppose, is is that we can't understand the world that we live in without looking at these pandemics that have affected humanity for, for over the last few thousand years.
0: In your book, you talk about going back a couple of thousand years just to say Athens and the plague of Athens. And you can now begin to piece back together what that probably was. We think that was a flu pandemic.
2: Possibly, but this has been a, one of the tough ones to decipher. There was about 10 years ago a study that thought it was it was typhoid but there were various problems identified with that paper so it ended up not being accepted but still the best the best evidence we have is the description by Thucydides of the disease and scientists have gone by that really.
0: So we think that Covid was a big problem for us in the modern era our our ancestors were also grappling with pandemics even thousands of years ago. So that's Jonathan Kennedy Also here is Rosemary Williams. Now, Rosemary is a budding astronomer and astrophysicist. She's been an intern with NASA, not once, not twice, but actually three times. And she's also worked with the Griffith Observatory in California. She's now over here, or rather just north of the border in Scotland at the University of Edinburgh, where she's studying for a master's in science communication. So you've slewed sideways (laughs) uh, from pure science into how to get science across to the general public. Why the transition
3: I think I realised that I loved talking about scientists more than I loved actually being in the lab and studying it, and so I realised I should probably transition out of that unless I wanted to be writing grant proposals for the rest of my life.
0: <laughs> it's a big year for people interested in space science as well, isn't it? Because we're, we're yeah. embarking on trips and forays back to the moon where we haven't been for yes. nearly half a century. Oh, yeah,
3: that was so exciting, the other day, actually.
0: And, of course, then the, the mission to clobber a, a, an asteroid to see yes. if we could dive first <laughs> So, yes, I mean, space continues to appeal to people very much, doesn't it? it? I mean, it always, always grabs attention straight away. It does, yeah. I mean, when we put the call out for this programme saying there's going to be a space scientist along, (laughs) send in your questions about, I don't want to wow you out or anything, but four-fifths of the questions (laughs) straight (laughs) away, astrophysics, black holes. Anyway, that's Rosemary. Also with us, Andrew Morris. Now, Andrew's a physicist by training and background who then became a teacher and now he still teaches, but in a slightly different way, because he's written a book. It's called Bugs, Drugs and Three Pin Plugs. I've got a copy of that in front of me. I really enjoyed reading this as well, Andrew. And the reason I enjoyed it is because what you've tried to do is basically put into plain, simple language a lot of the questions that grown-ups probably get asked by kids and, and currently say, ask your teacher.
4: Exactly. Well, I used to be a regular teacher in uh, in sixth-form college and a further education college teaching physics and maths. But I always felt... Well, well, going back to my own teenage, that I was just interested in asking questions about the world around me. And I've always felt sure that most people are like that. They, they are curious, even though they might find science at school difficult. So I set up this experimental idea of trying to run in groups, teaching in an adult education centre in London, in which I took the risk of just inviting the people to ask questions. They might be outside my field or they might not. And to see if a discussion could involve, and without necessarily having the answer to their precise question, I could use this as an entry point into some of the basic ideas about science, molecules, cells and so on But
0: equally uh, I think I always make the case when we're doing shows like this if people ask us a question and we don't know the answer because at the end of the day the reason scientists are employed as scientists is because we don't have all the answers yeah, exactly. often the answer I don't know yeah. is as valuable because you can then use it to explain to people how we might go about working it out. Or, I mean, someone, we did this show up in Edinburgh where, you know, where Rosemary hangs out, and uh, you, you might have a perspective on this, um, Rosemary. Someone, someone in the audience when we did this Q&A show said, how many protons are there in a star? And I don't know if they thought they were being funny. But then actually, I mean, the person they put it to was initially a bit scared. And then I said, well, we could work this out, actually.
4: I mean, I think that's a very detailed example. But I think that approach of modelling, trying to actually not exactly answer precisely a question, but to think of the process by which you would get at an answer... Estimating, very valuable. estimating is a particularly important scientific literacy, or, or
0: guesstimation as, yeah, yeah. We, as we as we like to call it. Anyway, that is Andrew Morris, the author of Bugs, Drugs, and Three Pin Plugs enjoyable book thank you very much he's here to answer your physics questions. so that is our team well let's begin rummaging through the mailbag to find out the answers to the questions you've already been sending in and rosemary i mentioned you've been very popular in our call for questions so you're up first and this one's from emma not the emma sitting next to you but another emma who says is there a definitive point above the earth where our atmosphere ends and outer space begins
3: yeah, that's a great question. The, the issue with astronomy and, and all things in general is there's very rarely like a black and white answer. You know, the atmosphere it doesn't have an edge, so to speak. It, it kind of fades out. So scientists have categorized the atmosphere into a few different layers. The one that's most valuable to all of us, I guess, the one that we're going to be interacting with our whole lives is called the troposphere. Um, and that's where 75% of all of the atmospheric particles lay. Um, and it goes all the way out to the exosphere, which actually reaches about halfway to the Moon. So it's this very very large range for the atmosphere, but you know most people think that space probably starts a little bit before halfway to the moon. You know, so in the 1900s there was a scientist named um, Theodore von Karman, and he basically calculated the highest point that a an aircraft could function within the atmosphere. Right, so planes rely on air to to provide lift, and so he calculated about. Uh, 84 kilometers around there was the highest point that a plane could fly relying on lift. Now, he ultimately decided that 100 kilometers is just a nicer number. Um, (laughs) There there wasn't a lot of science behind that. But 100 kilometers also happens to be about where a satellite can no longer stay in stable orbit because then you have to take into account the atmosphere inter- interfering with that orbit. So it, it might destabilize. So, you know, the general consensus is around 100 kilometers. It's not super important. You know, space is space. The only reason that it was kind of of concern is is politics. You know, who's controlling what aspects of the air and all of that. So great question. Thanks, Emma.
0: So 100 kilometers is our currently accepted. Yes. But it's a bit of an arbitrary number yes. because the atmosphere doesn't stop there.
3: No. No.
0: other aspects don't stop there. No. And the International Space Station, that's at about 400 kilometres, isn't it, up? So it's about four times further than that. But that's still in the atmosphere because I was talking to a, a space scientist and they were saying they have to periodically give it a boost because it yeah. is is—it is experiencing drag from the yes. the wisps and tendrils of atmosphere yes. that progress and progress even up there.
3: Yes, that's true, yeah.
0: There you go. Now you know about the Kármán line. Thank you for that, Rosemary. Emma, one for you. If I happen to come across a skeleton what are the giveaways that would show its sex or its age now i don't think i don't think he means the age of how long it's been in the ground i think he means as in the bones when that person died how old were they when they died
1: right and that's a great question as well and assessing sort of Sex and age at death are two of the fundamental things we do as bone specialists. Um, I should perhaps start out by saying that if you did find a skeleton, you should leave it where it is and not touch it and let the police know just in case It's of forensic relevance. But let's assume you're volunteering on an archaeological dig and you come across some skeletal remains. Well, for babies, children and teenagers, actually, it's very hard to tell what sex the individual was because a lot of the sex differences in the skeleton only really appear at puberty. But in adults, there are two areas of the skeleton that we typically look at most. So the pelvis, the hip bones and the skull the pelvis or or the hips are a functional characteristic if you like because they tend to be broader and have a wider birth canal for the baby to pass through in women so we can see sex differences there in the skull they're mainly secondary sex characteristics so things like males tend to have slightly heavier musculature because of higher levels of testosterone and that leaves all marks on the bones that we can then pick out and things like the brow ridges above the eyes tend to be more developed in males as well
0: what about the age question
1: in terms of age at death, it's almost the other way around there. So actually for babies, children and teenagers, we can get a much more precise and accurate idea of age at death. And that's based on the development of the teeth. So the formation of the teeth and also their eruption, but also on the, the formation of the skeleton and the bones. Whereas for adults, actually, it's much harder to be really precise and accurate about how old someone was when they died. Because once the skeleton and the teeth have all finished forming, we have to rely basically on wear and tear on the skeleton and trying to figure out how old someone was based on this wear and tear. And obviously many factors affect that. I mean, how active you are, whether you have a good diet, how healthy you are, all affect how much wear and tear your, your skeleton will show. So it becomes really difficult, especially in older adults.
0: I I was very taken with that piece of research that showed that amputation in that 30,000 year old early human ancestor that was reported a couple of months ago and the fact that they were able to say this individual would have had that injury aged about 12 and they died about age 16. How would they have known that for example that that person survived for four years after that injury and, and didn't die from it?
1: I mean it was a really remarkable study and One way you can tell. So basically, once your bone has had some kind of injury, so that could be an amputation or say you uh, break your arm or something, the bone goes through a healing process. So we can see that if someone died about the time that an injury happened or an amputation happened, there won't be much healing. And if they survive for a while afterwards, then there will be evidence of healing and the bone smooths over, that kind of thing. So particularly in that case, because in a younger individual, we can be quite precise about how old they were when they died. And then we know, you know, it must have taken approximately that period of time for that level of healing to occur. We can then work back and say, okay, if they were 16 when they died, they must have been say 12 when that injury or, or that amputation happened in this case.
0: You reminded me of a, of a question that I've just seen come in from Georgia that something you alluded to which we'll, we'll pick up on a bit later on but it's quite funny she said well when does grave robbing become archaeology and that's sort of what you were saying we'll come to that really a, bit, interesting one. a bit later <laughs> on thanks Emma. It's The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and this week we're answering your science questions. Of course, if you would like to get a question into a programme like this, do send it over to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet us, it's at Naked Scientist, or you can look us up on Facebook. With me this week are archaeologist Emma Pomeroy, physicist Andrew Morris, astronomer Rosemary Williams, and politics and global health specialist Jonathan Kennedy. Still to come in the programme, why do my ears pop on planes, wonders one person, And why, indeed, is glue sticky? Plus, we're going to probe the workings of black holes. But before that, Jonathan, here's one for you. How do we trace back viral outbreaks to their source? Is it just a case of tracking down patients who've got the symptoms and then find the first one, or is it more involved than that?
2: Well, I think it's not just viral outbreaks. I think we can look at epidemics and pandemics as one category. And perhaps it helps if we go back to the first epidemiologist, John Snow. So in about the 1830s, Europe was hit by cholera for the first time. And um, people didn't know what was causing this this horrible disease. Some people thought it was due to miasma. Bad air. Bad air, literally bad air. Other people thought that it might have been some kind of plot by the rich to, to poison the poor because it was poor people living in crowded insanitary urban slums that were being most affected and john snow had a hunch that this was a waterborne disease which was revolutionary at the time because germ theory hadn't been accepted at all and this made sense or it makes sense in hindsight because for example london where john snow lived was a city of about 3 million people in the middle of the 19th century but it had no kind of integrated sewage and water water network enormous amounts of of human waste just flowed into the thames and um, London's inhabitants got their drinking water from that very same river. So when a cholera epidemic broke out in 1854... Snow ran to Soho in the center of London where where the outbreak was occurring and he undertook what's probably the first epidemiological study he went around and he interviewed people that were affected and he tried to work out what linked them together in their working life and in their their kind of everyday life and he 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 realized that it must be related to this water pump on on Broad Street which is still still in Soho if you happen to happen to go there he-
0: amazing insight to think that he because we take this for granted these days don't we that something must cause something there must be a connection between all the individuals we ask all the people what their common exposure is and that must be the reason that they've got the problem but for him to do that in that era where we didn't even know that germs existed and that therefore they could be contained in a water supply and transmitted via water that was really a big leap
2: No it was absolutely revolutionary and sadly his ideas weren't accepted in his lifetime so he died about four years later and there was a a 33-word obituary in The Lancet, the prestigious medical journal, and it didn't mention... But did they
0: take him seriously at the time? So when he said, look, there is this water pump, there are all these cases that seem to be connected to it, did people take it seriously at the time, stop using the pump, and the disease went away, thus proving he must have been right?
2: Yes and no. So the local authorities, they looked at his evidence and agreed to remove the handle of the pump, and then the outbreak stopped. But the broader scientific community, in particular the, the commissioners that were... Charged with looking in the causes, looking at the causes of the fifty-four outbreak, rejected his idea, and um, <laughs> they kind of doubled down on the on the miasma theory. and And in this obituary to Snow, a few years later, there was no mention whatsoever of his work on epidemiology. It was all about his work on anaesthetics, which was the other thing that he was that he was known for. And it wasn't until the next outbreak, which occurred in in eighteen sixty six. So this was after the the sewers had been built in in London, and the last remaining place in London to to, to not have sewers connected um, around Bethnal Green had the big outbreak. And that finally convinced people that this was the waterborne disease. But but to come back to the question, if we look at COVID now and the way that that's traced back to the wet market in, in Wuhan, it's pretty similar methods. Epidemiologists have worked out that a large number of people that had the disease early on had been at the, at the market. And so that's a very likely point at which it jumped over from from animals to human but still we're not 100% certain that that's the case it's just this circumstantial
0: evidence It's interesting that, that there is that historical route to this aspect of epidemiology but like many amazing leaps in science it was too early, too soon and people didn't take it seriously and it took more convincing. I suppose it's kind of good in some respects that science is robust enough to defend itself against arguments and wants to be convinced but we mustn't be too dogmatic in our thinking. We must be open to to new arguments and new evidence, I suppose, is the is the moral of that story.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point, although I'd like to think hopefully science has advanced quite a lot since the kind of 1850s. The state of, of kind of medical understanding then was pre- pretty rudimentary and it hadn't changed much since the ancient Greeks, to be honest. So there's been a massive revolution in understanding the last Although,
0: 150s. I mean, you, you make this point that um, germ theory, the idea that there are germs that could be Transmitted between individuals had yet to be born at the time that all this was going on. And I was having this same conversation with someone the other day where we were pointing out that, in fact, if you look at the mortality rates and, and how long people were living and so on in that period in London, they were plummeting well before we even discovered what germs were, or, for instance, deaths from tuberculosis were plummeting well before we even knew what caused it, and it was all about cleaning up London, giving people better living conditions, giving people fresh water, sewage, better food. So public health did all that well before modern medicine came along.
2: No, no, exactly, and um, I think it shows the importance of politics to public health. The fact that there were political reforms in the UK in the, in the 1860s, 1870s, that made it politically viable to basically borrow money and spend it on public health because the electorate had been expanded so much that the people that were benefiting could, could actually vote for that but didn't have to pay for it.
0: Sounds nice. <laughs> and many governments are accused of eventually running out of other people's money to spend and that's <laughs> when they get voted out. Thanks for that, Jonathan. Andrew, over to you. Got a question here from Liz, which is an intriguing one. And she says, how do painkillers know where the pain is in my body? I mean, where does the, how does the pill know where it hurts? Yes,
4: a very interesting question. You might imagine that uh, pills must have some kind of destination board on the front saying, I'm headed for the liver or I'm going to sort out that headache. But it ain't like that, really. The clue to this is in the fantastic discoveries that different molecules have got different shapes, different structures. Actually, where we are in Cambridge is one of the great centres for discovering the structure of molecules. Originally, people used to look at the structure of rocks and minerals through shining x-rays and doing crystallography on them. And then people hit on the idea that we could do this with biological substances. If we could only make them into crystals, we could work out what the structure of these molecules is. And indeed, the famous Nobel laureate Dorothy Hodgkin worked, used x-rays, made crystals of penicillin and later on insulin, and discovered the precise structure. And what that means, of course... Just to make it clear, molecules are assemblies of atoms that are all bonded tightly together, and they make an overall shape. And in the body, a huge number of molecules are very large, extremely large. They're called macromolecules, in fact. Proteins are one example, DNA is another. And proteins are constructions of hundreds or often thousands of atoms into one gigantic molecule, which wraps up into a kind of globule. They're called globular proteins, and on the surface of these proteins, they have crevices and little hills and valleys. And proteins in the body, distributed often on the surface of different cells, have different-shaped crevices and different-shaped hills and valleys. Now, when we take a, a drug like a painkiller or any other drug, a beta blocker or um, a statin, these are small molecules, much, much smaller and they've got a particular shape as well. So what happens when you take them? They course through the body, through the fluid systems, through the blood, in particular the bloodstream. And it's only when the shape of this little molecule happens to pass by a crevice or a little niche on a protein and it fits. It's like a lock and a key. The The drug molecule fits the crevice on a protein that it, it sticks Basically, the small molecules, the drugs and the medicine are passing by almost everything until it reaches a specific receptor. It's called a receptor because that's where it receives the drug.
0: A bit like triggering a landslide in your valleys, discreetly in just the right valleys, because the the drug is addressed to the right parts of the body that have the right shape valley for, for that to happen.
4: I mean, I've emphasized shape there, but I should also, for accuracy, say that there's an electrical issue as well, that molecules have a, tend to have a positive end and a negative end, mm. and they have to match up so the positive end of a, of a drug molecule matches up with a negative place on the receptor molecule. There's
0: a well-known slogan for one brand that it hits pain where it hurts. And yeah. so in some respects, that's not wrong. It's that the drug does kind of know where the problem is because the problem only exists where it hurts and so it binds to the right place absolutely andrew thank you very much jonathan over to you i saw online this claim and haven't fact checked it so take this with a pinch of salt it says there's an estimated one followed by 31 zeros individual viruses on earth now that's a big number but as the old saying goes even fleas have fleas so are there viruses that prey on viruses
2: yeah, so I think that number is correct. I saw it quoted in Nature Microbiology too, and I found an interesting fact that if you lay all of the viruses on Earth end-to-end, they would stretch for 100 million light-years. I mean, is- that,
0: that's like really saying something when we're talking about something which is about a flu virus is one ten thousandth of a millimetre across. So there's a lot of viruses, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> I, think,
2: I think it's so hard to get one's head around both the size of viruses, but also the enormous number Of viruses in the world, so you know. For example, it might be easier to conceptualize if you take a liter of seawater. There's a hundred billion virus particles in that liter. Or if you take a kilogram of soil from the earth, there's about a trillion. So that's a million million virus particles in just a kilo of soil. It's just absolutely mind blowing. But I think the thing to the thing to remember is that animals and plants and fungi, although they dominate our view of what the tree of life is, they only actually kind of represent a tiny. Tiny amount of the tree of life, the vast majority of species are, are bacteria and archaea, so kind of single celled organisms on the on the whole and only a few twigs of the tree of life really are made up of complex life like animals, fungi, and plants so I saw some studies where it says that there 's less than ten million species of complex life, but there 's about one trillion types of bacteria and archaea. So it's really it's really mind blowing. And you might say, oh well these are just tiny little insignificant things, but actually if you took all the bacteria on the planet and weighed the mass of them, they would weigh a hundred times more than all the humans on the planet. So they're still really, really significant. But to come back to the question, the vast majority of viruses are viruses that infect Bacteria, so what we call bacteria phage phages or or phages from the greek to to devour, and these actually play an enormously important role in the way the whole ecosystem works because they kill an estimated twenty to forty percent of bacteria on the planet every single day. And this allows kind of the, the world to maintain its, or the ecosystem to maintain its balance. So, so yeah, super, super important. But yeah. viruses can play positive as well as kind of, um, disease-carrying roles in well, we, the world Well, we, we talked
0: in. the other day in our programme about tuberculosis, about the use of these bacteriophages to kill those, those TB bugs. But returning to the question, which was, are there viruses that prey on viruses? They have been discovered, haven't they? There are so-called virophages. There are viruses that piggyback on other viruses and, and infect viruses so when a virus is growing in a cell you can get another virus comes in and gets into the process and steals some of the resources the other virus is making for itself so it can basically parasitize a parasite yeah. so viruses are incredible things aren't they mind blowing <laughs> <and stuff, yeah. laughs> thank you very much Jonathan The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk.
1: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions.
0: It's the Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. We're answering the science questions you've been sending in this week with Emma Pomeroy, Andrew Morris Rosemary Williams and Jonathan Kennedy. They are, between them, a space scientist, an archaeologist, a physicist and a global health specialist. Right, it's quiz time, everybody. I knew you were all eagerly anticipating this. We do this whenever we have a Q&A programme. It's, uh, it's our opportunity to test the mettle of our panel, but also you can play along at home. We've got uh, four people here in the studio, so logically that breaks down into two teams, and I'm going to divide you up into Emma and Andrew as team one, and Jonathan and Rosemary are going to be team two. You're actively encouraged to confer between you, please. Now, we've got three rounds for this, and the first round is the World Cup. Now, don't worry, this is not actually, I'm told, about football... You're right, because it's a peg. With the biggest sporting competition in the world just about to kick off, we've got two questions based around the competing teams. So are our teams, I ask you at home, going to be sick as parrots or are they going to be over the moon? Well, question one for Emma and Andrew. Which of these previous World Cup host nations have been awarded the most Nobel Prizes for science? I'll give you three options. And By Nobel Prizes for Science, it's physics, chemistry or the physiology or medicine prize. We're not including peace or literature here. So is it A, Switzerland, B, France, or C, Germany? Which of those World Cup host nations has had the most Nobel Prizes for science in the past? What do you think? Do confer.
4: France had a lot in the... uh... Early days with the Curies and everything, didn't it? Yes.
1: No, it, it's a difficult one, though, and I, I was worried it was going to be a question about football and then actually it's more <laughs> about Nobel <mobile laughs> Prizes, but I still don't <laughs> feel I really know the answer. So.
4: Germany industrialised very early right. and, and did an awful lot of science. Going to have to hurry you. you Switzerland, I, France or yeah. Germany? I'll go for France. Yeah, myself. let's go
1: for France, I think. You're going, Yeah, yeah I'm well, happy I've France. got
0: some fantastic sound effects for this week, OK, which Will, our producer, has, has imaginatively titled Goal... Miss And you are going to get a Unfortunately it's a miss No the answer is Germany It's got the third highest number of scientific Nobel Prizes 79 across all categories And they're behind do you know who Us Us. UK on 90 but, of course, the leaders out in front of the USA, USA, big country, yeah. 273. You were right to point the finger at France, who have 35 Nobel Prizes in science, but Switzerland so far has only got 18. I'm afraid that's a miss for you guys. Question two is going Jonathan and Rosemary's way. And, again, another world event happening right now. COP 27, very much in the news at the moment. This is the climate conference. Uh, They've got a focus at COP27 on preserving biodiversity. So what we want to know, Jonathan and Rosemary, is which of the following nations at this year's World Cup has the highest biodiversity index ranking? And if you want to know what one of those is, a biodiversity index is defined by what percentage of all of the world's animal species are found in that country. So which of these countries has the highest biodiversity index? Is it Mexico australia or the united states what do you think
3: okay. the, I, the u.s is so broad there's so many different biomes within the u.s um i, I know australia is a lot of desert but I, it also it, has
2: some rainforest but yeah, yeah. Enormous amount of amount of kind of the outback as well where there doesn't seem to be much and um maybe the best way to work it out is biodiversity seems to or there's a rule right that it increases as you get closer to the equator um, oh. because there's more sun, there's more vegetation. Oh, therefore. yeah.
0: So, so in maybe that case,
2: Mexico? Mexico or Australia. Um,
3: I don't know, yeah. you decide. <laughs> Let's go Mexico.
0: Go Mexico. <gasps> Uh, and you've scored a goal Well done yeah. oh, we did. It is, it is, oh, it is indeed it Mexico oh, well. Brazil well done. Yeah, Brazil Go would be far too easy uh, That was the highest Mexico 6th in the world for biodiversity 10% of the total world species are found there Australia 7th place And the US is in position number 10 UK we're a small island It's down the bottom <laughs> of the world rankings um, Hopefully our national team will do a bit better in the World Cup. Right, over to round two, back to Emma and Andrew. So this round is which came first? And so we're asking you which invention of these three came first? Is it the raincoat, the hot air balloon or the photograph? The raincoat, the hot air balloon or the photograph? Which of those inventions came first?
1: Wow. Um, <laughs> I, I think the one I have really no idea about is, is the raincoat,
4: well, I was and, thinking Macintosh. Um, yeah, yeah think that's a kind of computer, though, isn't it? That's very modern. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs>
1: but then, actually, I mean, how how are we defining raincoat? And that sounds yeah. a very boring scientist's answer. But if you if you were talking about using um, skins or some kind of fabric that was impregnated with something oh. that would help make it waterproof, that could actually go mm. back quite a long way in terms yeah. of archaeology. Yeah. You know, yeah. using fats or something like that on. On skins or tanned hides. So, yeah. I go for
4: Macintosh, definitely. I'd I'd see the hot air balloon a bit later. Yeah,
1: and photography Mm. seems.
0: So you're going, raincoat is the earliest. Raincoat Raincoat. Raincoat is the earliest. Unfortunately, you've hit the bar again. Um it's the hot air balloon was the answer. Would you have got that you too? Were you were you You were saying Rosemary you looking yeah, proud of yourself?
3: That was my guess. That I, I I have no idea who did it, but I know Da Vinci made a lot of really cool weird machines, so I was like, maybe the hot air balloon.
0: Well the raincoat, you were quite right, Andrew, the raincoat was invented by a Scottish architect Charles Macintosh. That was in eighteen twenty three. The first photograph was eighteen fourteen, which was the French inventor inventor Joseph Nisipour Niepce. But in 1783, following tests with a rooster, a duck and a sheep first, followed by a human pilot who was the Frencher Pilatre de Rosier, was his name, he successfully ascended to the dizzy height of 25 metres in a hot air balloon that was built by the Montgolfier brothers. So there is your answer, Rosemary. So unfortunately you didn't score on that one. So at the moment, Team Two are in the lead. They have one point. Let's find out if they can cement their lead, Rosemary and Jonathan. We want to know which of these was discovered first. A, the planet Uranus, B, the element hydrogen, or C, the cell. What was discovered first?
3: Okay, so William Herschel discovered Uranus in... Oh, gosh, I should know this. Um, I want to say, like, the, the 1800s. I, d- I don't know about the the cell or hydrogen. The cell, yeah, I'm not sure about the
2: cell. Um, the first person to use a microscope to to look at what he called animacules was Anthony von Löwenhoek, I think I might have pronounced it wrong, um, a Dutch haberdasher who ground lenses because he wanted to look at the quality of his, of his curtains that he was buying and selling and then he started to look at water and, start and, yeah. and, and saw these these kind of very tiny things. But I'm not sure if he would have identified the cell, but that was back in the 16 late 16. 1600s. Um,
3: so it's got to be before Uranus, then.
2: Perhaps, but maybe he didn't label them as cells and hydrogen. I have no, no idea.
3: Hydrogen. I. I Gonna have to I, hurry you. Oh man. Um. I maybe maybe the cell.
0: Okay, let's go with let's
3: that. Let's go with the cell. Are you going cells? Yeah. <gasps>
0: Oh. And you scored another goal. Very good. Oh. Well done.
3: <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're so surprised. You take these penalties and then you, you expect them to miss and you get one right in the top of the net. We don't
4: need the third one. It's two <laughs> <and three. laughs>
0: you're quite right to choose the cell. I'll give you the reasoning and, and the argument behind this. All of them were discovered a long time ago, but Uranus, you're quite right, was Sir William Herschel, 1781. So a little bit earlier than you speculated. Hydrogen, Henry Cavendish, Cambridge man, 1766, but the earliest of all was the cell. You were were right with your your dating. Robert Hooke described the cell in 1665, and his collaborator was Leuvenhoek, who was sending to the Royal Society reams and reams of drawings of things he had seen with his tiny little glass droplet lenses so very very good do you want to have a go at the last one because it is it is quite funny See so if you can redeem yourselves and get off the <laughs> off the ground team team 1 because it, it will be about time if you do so and that is the name of the next round round 3 it's about time emron and andrew our planet's rotational speed is gradually slowing this is because of friction effects associated with the tides which are giving energy to the moon speeding it up so that means the length of a day on earth was shorter in the past how long was a day about one and a half billion years ago was it a 12 hours b 18 hours or c 23 hours long
1: I have even less idea than I had about the last two, and we
0: didn't do particularly well at that.
4: those. No, I, I go along with the frictional effect and the slowing mm. down. Yeah, I, I go with that because of the tides. So, what do you reckon uh, the, the day length was? Oh, yeah, so I, go
1: over the twenty-three. That's and, what that would
4: yeah. be my twenty-three hours.
0: Yeah. You're going 23. I'm <laughs> really sorry that you haven't redeemed yourself. <laughs> you scored three misses. I don't know who you're taking penalties for, but you're not going to be on their team for the World Cup. Um, the answer is B. It was actually 18 hours long. The formation of the earth, A day was as short as 12 hours, but on average, because the length of a year increases by a second every 65,000 years or so, if you wind the clock back, it was about 18 hours back then. Do you want to have a go, you two, and see if you what you would have won? The average human lifespan across the planet is about seventy-three. But there are members of the animal kingdom that achieve this many times over. And one of the oldest living vertebrates, in other words, an animal with a spine, is believed to be the Greenland shark. One individual got carbon dated. In fact, they looked at its eyeball for various reasons. And they found that it was the living, longest living vertebrate that had ever been discovered. How old did the scientists think that she was? Was it A, 191.5 years, B, 301 years or C, 401 years?
3: I feel like I remember reading something about a shark being like older than the United States. I could be pulling that out of nowhere, but I feel like I read that. So,
2: I think it's really, really old. I mean, they're funny, funny species, aren't they? I believe they get these parasitic worms in their eyes that they obviously can't get rid of because they don't have fingers or hands to yeah. to, to, to take them out, and they kind of go around for hundreds of years with these with these parasitic worms in their in their eyes. But I'd probably go for the longest, the oldest.
0: The, the oldest. You go in the oldest.
3: Uh, do you... that's four hundred and one years. That's answer so C. old. I I'm going to stick to three hundred and one. You're okay, going to go three hundred one. We'll, well, yeah, okay.
0: You've missed your oh. first <laughs> shot on goal. It's actually four hundred and one years. Oh, right? Um, it, it was wow. um the, the way they proved it was with radiocarbon dating the eyeballs because they contain tissues that are not replaced during the lifetime of the animal. Those are the the crystalline proteins that form the lens they are not replaced as the animal ages. And so you can look at the age of the carbon atoms in there and how many of them are radioactive and work out how old the animal is. And when this was done, 401 years is the average because it could be between 272 or perhaps even as old as 512 years. Isn't that amazing? Isn't nature an incredible thing? Anyway, the winners of the Naked Scientists. Big Brain of the Week Award this week are our astronomer Rosemary Williams and our expert in global health, Jonathan Kennedy. I think they deserve a round of applause, thank you very much. And, uh, and team one, better luck next time. Let's get back to the Q&A. Andrew, one for you. George wonders, why do my ears go pop when I go through a tunnel in a train or on an aeroplane when I'm going up and down in the air?
4: I've got a, a friend who's in my discussion group who asked a similar question once and she loves going to the Canary Islands And she went, she had a cold and her whole head was blocked. And when the plane took off, she found that her ears got unblocked again. And uh, it was wonderful. So she had lovely hearing on the flight. And then when it descended, uh, her ears all blocked up again. What it seems is that there's obviously a difference in air pressure. Uh, In a cabin, uh, in in an aeroplane, the air pressure is is raised by taking air from the engines, bleeding it off into the cabin. But the air pressure in the cabin of an aeroplane is still slightly less than it is at ground level. In fact, it's about the same pressure as the top of a mountain, and that's to make sure that the stresses on the fuselage don't lead to the to the plane exploding. So you, you've got a slightly lower pressure than normal, but, of course, the other side of your eardrum, inside your middle ear, is still got the, the air pressure that you've got when you when you took off. So there's an imbalance between the air pressure on one side of your eardrum and, and the other side of the eardrum. And, of course, this happens when you walk up a mountain uh, or, a, as we say, you, you get similar effects going into a, a tunnel on a train. But your ear's got a brilliant mechanism for balancing out, uh, equalising the pressure on both sides, and it's called the eustachian tube. The eustachian tube vents, as it were, it vents the, the middle ear out back to the normal atmospheric external pressure through your nose. So uh, when you yawn or, or the experience of walking up a mountain and feeling the pressure change or in an aeroplane, what's happening is the middle ear is venting itself through the eustachian tube a little little burst of air to make sure that the pressure on both sides of the eardrum is the same
0: and and if you get a cold and it clogs up that's why it can take a bit longer for that to happen thanks very much for that This is The Naked Scientist, I'm Chris Smith. With me this week, Rosemary Williams, Emma Pomeroy, Jonathan Kennedy and Andrew Morris and together we're answering the science questions that you've been sending us. Rosemary, over to you. This one's from Rich and he's wondering about black holes and he's heard that black holes are rotating. So what's rotating about them?
3: So in order to understand why black holes rotate, we have to understand how they form. So black holes, essentially, they form when you have a star that collapses under its own weight. There's, there's two main processes happening inside a star. You have gravity that's pulled all of this hydrogen and helium together and then you have a nuclear fusion at the core um, that's essentially, you know, forcing all of these hydrogen atoms together to form helium and then three heliums together to form a carbon. And that's providing a lot of energy that's stopping the collapse. But eventually, stars are going to run out of this fuel at the center and you no longer have a big force outward due to nuclear fusion. So you just have gravity forcing itself inward and that star starts to collapse on itself. Now, all of the stars that we have observed have had some sort of spin. They've all rotated. And in physics, just like there's conservation of energy, you have this thing called conservation of angular momentum. You have to keep the same momentum over over time, over everything. You have to maintain it. So when the black hole is collapsing, it's going to keep that momentum of the star that it that existed before it, right? So you have a star that's spinning, much like you have uh, you know, ice skater that's spinning. They bring their arms in. They spin faster. That's the same thing that's happening. You have a star that's spinning. It collapses in on itself. It still has to spin. And the question of what exactly is spinning, well you have a singularity at the center of a black hole. And we usually say kind of hand wavy. It's, it's this infinite density thing. You have, you have a lot of mass in this infinitesimally small space. But in reality, it does have some volume. It's just so, so, so small that we can just kind of say that, that it doesn't. And so it is that tiny, tiny volume of mass at the center of a black hole that's spinning. Now, we don't exactly know what is happening at the center of the bla- of a black hole. And, and we may never know. So it's important to say that but that's you know what we've theorized to have happened based off of equations and, and physics and all of that but physics gets super wonky on these small scales
0: thank you brilliantly explained yeah. andrew one for you and this comes from someone called andrew who wants to know what is it about glue that means it is sticky so how does glue stick
4: stuff i mean glues are sticky only really when they're connecting two surfaces uh it's not a kind of magic property that they have and they only stick when the right surfaces and the right glues meet each other. Hence the it, it,
0: old joke, you know, how do they get the glue to come out the tube then? If it's so sticky, why does it stick to it, the exactly.
4: tube? Exactly. We all know, probably got examples from our woodwork classes of glues that never worked and so on. And uh, it's back to this story about the forces between molecules, adhesive forces and cohesive forces. Because if you look at two surfaces in contact through a, a high-powered microscope, it is extraordinary to see that they're really, really rough. And it's like this kind of top of a mountain range on one surface meeting the top of a mountain range on another surface and grating against each other. So actually, when two surfaces are in contact, there's most it's mostly empty space in between them and just the peaks at one peak meeting another peak where they're actually physically in contact. So the job of glue is to get in there, into the space between two surfaces and it penetrates it might penetrate through cracks or it might just get adsorbed into the surrounding material or there might even be a chemical bond but once the glue penetrates one way or another into the two surfaces that would be bonded the question is do the forces that hold the glue molecules together that's called cohesion are they less or greater than the forces of attraction between the glue molecules and the surface, which is called the adhesion. So glues have to adhere from the glue surface to the surface they're connecting, but they also have to cohere so that the glue doesn't fall apart itself. Can you help me out then and
0: tell me why I can't get Weetabix off of a bowl that's (laughs) that's gone dry?
4: Oh, a new one. I mean, it's, it's uh, a similar thing yeah. to
0: wallpaper paste, I presume, isn't it? Because yeah. it's starch. Yeah. And I presume because that's a stringy molecule, it's doing exactly as you say and threading the the tendrils of starch into the rough surface of the ceramic and, and in the but, same way as the wallpaper paste gets into the back of the wallpaper
4: and the wall. Very good, and, uh, very good point. And at the fundamental physics level, it's electrical attraction. I mean, to make it simple, it's the fact that one molecule electrically is attracted to another molecule.
0: I have a lot of electrical attraction, I'm sure you can sympathise with that. Rosemary, one for you from Peter, who's asking about the Big Bang and says, if everything started in the Big Bang, how can we still see it? I think he's referring here to, for instance, what we dub the afterglow of the Big Bang or the cosmic microwave background radiation. He says, wouldn't the light from that event be well past us now, unless we travelled faster than the speed of light in some way, so how can we still see it?
3: Yeah. To to think of this question, you have this big explosion and, and away going away from the explosion, you have a lot of light, you have you have a lot of energy that's turning into mass, right? E equals mc squared. You can turn that energy into a mass. We actually did go faster than the speed of light. Uh, but, it, but it's a tricky question. There's a lot of caveats to that. It is as if you have, imagine you have like a, a stretchy sheet, objects on the sheet, which represents space time, let's see marbles are constrained to move below or at the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second. But the sheet itself can stretch faster than the speed of light. It's not constrained to this 300,000 kilometers per second. So although particles and, and things within this sheet have a speed limit, the sheet doesn't. So you can kind of get around this it's kind of like you can walk on a train right you 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 have your speed on a train maybe you're walking you know four kilometers per hour or something but the train itself could be moving 90 kilometers per hour and so because of that we're still getting light from the big bang because we've kind of outrun it and and now it's catching up to us so now we're able to see this light this energy temperature the cosmic microwave background from all around us um, coming from the big bang which is super super cool
0: In summary, then, you're saying the universe is born, there's all these particles together sharing the same energy at that moment in time, Mm -hmm. which is what's going to ultimately give them the cosmic microwave background radiation as it is today. That bit of the universe, the sheet they're all sitting in, gets much bigger, very, very promptly, and much bigger than the speed of light and drags the particles with it. Effectively, they haven't moved, but because the space between them has got much bigger, much more quickly, when we appear we're seeing those things all over the place in yeah. the observable universe so we're seeing as though that light is coming to us for the first time
3: yeah and I think the the really interesting thing about this is if you could see through kind of this fog we call it recombination around us you would be able to see the Big Bang happening all around you if you had a if you had a super powerful telescope because when you're looking through space you're looking back in time and so in theory if you looked in any one direction far enough you'd see the Big Bang and if you turned around and looked really far in that direction you'd see the Big Bang so the Big Bang would be happening all around you which is so um, incredibly weird. Yeah, but, yeah. It
0: is a bit mind boggling isn't it but yeah. um, the way you've put it very very clear thank you for that. Jonathan this one uh, which we mentioned earlier in the program when we get ill our body temperature goes up and in fact researchers have done scientific studies from thousands of temperature measurements made in germany and, and other parts of the world 100 years ago and compared it today we're apparently one degree warmer in the past than we are today but um why does our temperature go up this person says when we get ill
2: i think the answer to this is just quite simple right it's just the body's immune response to being infected and many viruses many bacteria that infect humans are are very um, temperature sensitive and so the the body's immune system Increases its temperature in order to make it less hospitable for these pathogens. You're basically cooking them into submission, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, at least kind of discouraging them from reproducing and making us even more sick.
0: And Emma, one for you, Martin is wondering about the paleo diet. He doesn't say whether he's trying it or anything, but he says, is there any scientific or evolutionary backing to things like the paleo diet? What does that actually mean, that term?
1: So the idea of the paleo diet is that the optimal diet for humans to eat and the one that we probably ate for most of our evolutionary history as a species, which is something like, you know, 300,000 years, is what hunter-gatherers would eat. So. You would think of wild-hunted game, so they have low body fat compared to domesticated species, for example, so very lean meat, um, not eating things like pulses and grasses, things like that, going for wild foods, not the kind of domesticated things that are the foundation of our diet today.
0: But it still would critically contain meat?
1: Yes, yes. And uh, well, I guess there's different versions of the diet, depending on who you ask. The big problem here, well, there's various big problems here. So one is that there is not a single diet that even contemporary hunter gatherers eat, let alone hunter gatherers in the past. There's been climate changes. We find hunter gatherers everywhere from the tropics right up into the Arctic. And of course, they're eating very different diets. So there is no one diet that humans are adapted for. It's also The case that we're adapted to eat some of the foods that we have domesticated since the adoption of agriculture. We can see evidence for adaptation to consume milk, for example, and also changes in our our carbohydrate metabolism that are linked to that. And equally, we know if we look in the archaeological record, we can see evidence of even Neanderthals um, gathering grasses and wild grains and eating those. So It's not so simple as there's one diet that humans are adapted for or that certain types of food are necessarily good or bad. And really, we have to take a much more pragmatic and holistic approach to our diet and think about other factors as well, like exercise, you know, the amount of energy we're using that will affect how much food and what kinds of resources our body needs. So we can't really single out diet on its own to really know what's going to be healthy and best for our bodies.
0: Rosemary, uh, Roger says, now we can see back almost to the beginning of the universe, we can see a long way in each direction. So what shape is the universe that we see?
3: Oh, this is a tricky question. So this is kind of addressing a part in astronomy that is the observable universe versus the universe itself. So the observable universe being when you look up at the night sky, when telescopes are looking at the night sky, what they can see, the amount of light that they're getting in from all different directions. And we know that that is a sphere because when we look up around us, we can see stuff in all directions. Now, the universe as a whole, there's three different possibilities for what it could be. It could either be a sphere, it could be kind of a saddle shape, or it could be flat. The sphere being a a positive, of curvature in every direction, a saddle shape being this negative curvature, and then flat obviously being no curvature. And I believe this is taken from measurements from the cosmic microwave background, which is so rich in information. That's why studying the cosmic microwave background is, is so important in astronomy, because it gives us so much information about the universe and how we started and, and you know, the, the composition of our universe, how much dark matter there is, how much matter there is. And it is one measurement where I believe if it is one, it is that the universe is flat. If it's above one, it's curved. And if it's below one, it means that our universe is kind of negatively curved, this shot, this saddle shape. And the current measurements are around this one value and we haven't gotten it exactly precisely, which is exactly why it's important for us to keep studying cosmic microwave background. But it's hovering around one, which means that it makes me very uncomfortable to say but that the universe is kind of flat, um, which I don't like at all. <laughs> I want it to be like a sphere. But that's kind of what the science is saying right now. But continuing to study this is, is very important and it'll give us a, a greater understanding of, of the universe beyond our observable universe. And you obviously
0: like the idea that you can start and go on forever come back where you started eventually yes i do very comforting for you jonathan one for you this person's asking a recent paper came out suggesting a person's risk from covid could be down to neanderthal genes that they carry tell us more
2: i think emma should be able to help us with this as well so maybe you can you can chip in but um i mean i think to begin with we have to remember that homo sapiens and neanderthals perhaps had a a common ancestor what, between 500,000 and 750,000 years, yep. years ago. And um, so a long, long, long time ago, Neanderthal ancestors managed to leave Africa and end up in much of Western Eurasia. And I think evidence has been found everywhere from Gibraltar all the way to the Altai Mountains, right? In, yep, in, absolutely. In, yeah, absolutely. In, in Siberia. And so from a kind of epidemiological perspective, Neanderthals and Homo sapiens were growing up in or we're evolving in very, very different conditions. Um, so, you had Neanderthals evolving to adapt to the challenges posed by a temperate climate, and you had um, Nya- Homo uh, sapiens evolving to adapt to the challenges in a tropical area,
1: sub-Saharan Africa. So, quite a different environment.
2: And, and as came up in the quiz, um, because biodiversity is much higher in in the in the tropics, you don't just have more vegetation; you have more animals. Then you have more parasites that live on those on those animals so the disease burden carried by homo sapiens was different so they're evolving
0: so in different environments so they're therefore facing and responding to different challenges which is going to select for different sorts of genetic endowments as it yeah, were to resistance yeah, yeah. to different yeah. diseases so how yeah. does that then address the question of neanderthal genes change our risk of covid so, so let 's do another step as well,
2: because I think it 's really fascinating. It builds on what we talked on before. but fifteen years ago we didn 't know whether Homo sapiens and Neanderthals had actually met, but after the genome of neanderthals was 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 kind of restructured, we realized that humans have about two percent of neanderthal DNA, and this isn 't just random DNA; this is gene variants that help Homo sapiens adapt to the environment that they face when they're, when they 're migrating out of Africa forty thousand years ago, so quite a few of these gene variants um, to do with the immune system. And maybe, maybe Emma wants to yeah, take over. And...
1: And, and so actually, uh, you're absolutely right. There's these different variants that are associated with different aspects and different functions of our immune system. And it has been shown by one paper that there's a certain variant that we can track back to Neanderthals that increases susceptibility to COVID. On the other hand, we've got another variant that actually offers some protection as well. So it's a it's a balance and it's not a clear neanderthal genes are bad or good so to speak in terms of covid susceptibility it's
0: still extraordinary to think that running around in in about um, you know two percent of our genomes are genes that would have been carried by this other group of our ancestors dating back more than 50,000 years while you're here emma can you help georgia who came forward with this question earlier which was, when does grave robbing become archaeology? You've got about a minute to answer this. Can, can you help okay. Georgia with, when, when do we cease to be a grave robber and become an archaeologist?
1: It's extremely interesting, and I think it's not necessarily about time, um, because you can actually do archaeology on very recent um, sites, And people do that. It's more about the motivations and how you do it. So grave robbing is usually acquisitive. So it's to get remains or to get the grave goods to keep or to sell. Whereas archaeology is actually about finding information about the past and in some senses preserving the past. So taking meticulous records and doing everything in meticulous detail to really preserve the knowledge about how people lived in the past.
0: So it's the intent that matters, isn't it? Thanks, Emma, for that. Well, that is where we must leave it for this week. But thank you Thank you very much for listening and for sending in your questions and thanks of course to the wonderful panel who joined us this week rosemary williams emma pomeroy jonathan kennedy and andrew morris next time we'll be picking apart the practice of personality testing increasingly the suitability of a given person for a particular role might at least be partly evaluated by their response to questions with seemingly no wrong answer but is this a fair or a sensible way to give someone a job. We'd also be very interested to hear your perspective on this. Perhaps you've been profiled for a position, successfully or otherwise, and you have an opinion. Do let us know. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on that. And in the meantime, if you would like to support The Naked Scientists, your donations are extremely welcome to help keep the show on the road. We've made it very easy to do that. It's nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and until next time, goodbye.